Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. If you would take your Bible and go with me to Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9. We are going to look together at a remarkable moment in the record of the Gospels. It's a moment that's actually not recorded for us in the Gospel of John, but felt was fitting for us here at the outset of a new year. If we consider this text, it's helpful for us to consider that the Israelites in the Old Testament are often an easy target for us. I think sometimes we track through the Old Testament and we see God do remarkable things, amazing things, astonishing things, and then we see the Israelites respond with little faith, with little believing, right, with boneheaded maneuvers, and we go, what were they thinking, right? They're an easy target for us. It's easy also to do that with the disciples in the New Testament, right? They see Jesus do all of these amazing things, and then they lack faith. They do dumb things, and we go, what are they thinking, right? And yet, isn't it true that we're a lot like them? We are a lot like them. If we are willing to admit it, we're a lot like them. And I say that to begin this message this morning because the text we're going to consider is really sandwiched between two boneheaded moments with the disciples. So if you're in Mark chapter 9, look with me at Mark chapter 8, towards the end of Mark chapter 8, and you will find in verse 33, Jesus saying something to Peter that ends up not being the greatest moment for Peter, okay? to put it mildly. So the context of this is that Jesus is explaining to his disciples about suffering, how the path to the crown is going to go through the cross. He is going to suffer. He's going to die. And Peter's response to that off the cuff is, no, Jesus, I know you're Jesus, but by the way, this is just after the moment in which he makes a grand confession, which is like, a kind of hero moment for Peter. He nailed that one, right? You are the Christ, and he's feeling really good about himself. And so in this moment, he steps up. You're Jesus. Yes, we get that. But no, I'm not going to let that happen. You're not going to suffer. Not on my watch, right? You're not going to die. This whole suffering thing, no, not going to happen. What does Jesus say? Verse 33. Check it out in your text. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> not a great moment for Peter. He calls him Satan. Just think about that. But what does he go on to say? This is helpful for us. Jesus says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Look at verse 34. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is, in effect, calling Peter out, calling the disciples really out for being preoccupied with the present, 
with the here, the now, their comfort, their idea about going straight to power, straight to glory. Jesus is going to say, no, 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 you, you guys have missed it. The path to the crown goes through a cross. I'm going to suffer. And he's also preparing them for suffering as well. And Peter's like, nope, not going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Not a great moment for Peter. Now look at chapter 9. Allow your eyes to fall down to verse 30. Now before we read this, which is going to sound very similar to what we saw at the end of chapter 8, understand the context. The context of this moment is a dramatic healing of a boy that was possessed with a demon. Again, Jesus here displaying incomparable power. Then as they walked toward Capernaum through Galilee, here's what happens, verse 30, then they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching, i.e. he was having kind of a private moment of instruction with his disciples as they walked. And he was saying to them, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Again, Jesus is reiterating the fact that they are going to suffer, and that before that, he is going to suffer. He is going to be killed, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Verse 32, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus wants to have this private moment of instruction with his disciples on the way to Capernaum as they walk through Galilee, and he wants to talk to them again about suffering, again about his plan to go to the cross. But they don't want to talk about that. You can see that verse 32. They don't want to talk about it. They don't quite understand it. It's not appealing to them, and so they're quiet. They're silent. But they do want to talk about something. You guys hear me? They do want to talk. What do they want to talk about? Check out your text. They are preoccupied with something else. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Think about this. I think the New American Standard actually helps us more with the statement, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. You guys are familiar with the goat debate, right? The greatest of all time, G-O-A-T. They were having a kind of goat debate in the presence of the actual goat, right? In the presence of the actual greatest of all time, undisputed. Jesus. But they on the way are discussing among themselves which one of us is the greatest. That was pretty remarkable back there. Peter is like, right? Did you see me preach? It's pretty good. I know I'm, I'm, I'm a rookie at this, but that was pretty good, right? Just think about it. And when they get to Capernaum, Jesus pauses and asks them, what were you guys talking about on the way? And it's silent. We know why it's silent. They don't want to fess up to this. But he knows exactly what they were talking about. So they were preoccupied with themselves. And they were preoccupied with the here and now. So Jesus calls Peter out. 
refers to him as Satan, and then he calls all of them out for their egotistical talk. But if we're honest, brothers and sisters, I think we would all have to admit that we're a lot like them. We are a lot like them. We have similar fears. Any kind of threat to our safety, any kind of threat to our discomfort. We have similar loves. We lust for money. We lust for comfort. We lust for popularity. We lust for likes. We're a lot like them. But my question is, what if we were different? What if we were different in 2023? Here's the question. What if we were more preoccupied with Christ and others instead of ourselves in 2023 as individuals and also as a congregation? What if we were more preoccupied with Christ and others instead of ourselves? And then secondly, what if we were more preoccupied with eternity, eternal things and the reality of what's ahead in eternity instead of just fixated on the here and now? What if this were true of us in 2023 as individuals and as a congregation? I think it would change things, my friends, and I believe that Jesus helps us in Mark chapter 9. Sandwiched between these two moments, in Mark's gospel, you find this. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Check it out with me. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. <laughs> and again, here's Peter. They don't know what to say, but Peter is like, somebody's got to say something, right? And so he comes up with this great idea of a camp out. Pretty good idea, actually. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus was transfigured before them. The word transfigured literally means what you think it means when you read it. It means transformed, and yet it needs to be explained. How many of you guys had transformers when you were kids? Okay, several of us, I'm sure. Or you had, you know, something that was like a Mustang that you could transform into this sort of machine-like robot monster or whatever. This needs to be explained. The idea of transfigured, which means transformed, is not, in Jesus' case, something being transformed into something else. It's more like revelation. It's more like a revealing, which in this, if you can track with it and think about it, is something truly astonishing. Because in it, I think you can see a 
beautiful distinction between Jesus and us. For Jesus to be totally exposed, to be completely transparent, is transcendent. For us to be totally exposed is what? It's terrifying, is it not? It's terrifying. I remember when I was a kid, I heard preachers often do the whole thing where they were like, what if, teenagers, what if in the last week we put up on the screen everything that you thought, every thought that came across your mind that you were entertaining, every thought you thought about other people and everything you were, what if that happened? I remember thinking to myself, that'd be bad. Like, I wouldn't like that, right? And if it was someone else, you might stick around for a little bit because it's a little interesting, right? But you'd probably look for the exit because you're like, I don't want to be next, right? For us, total transparency, to be totally exposed is terrifying. But for Jesus, it's glorious. Isn't this, isn't this phenomenal? For Jesus, it's glorious. And this is the idea of him being transfigured. It's him kind of pulling back the curtain and revealing, as it were, who he really is as God and man. He's not merely man. He is God and man. The God-man. He's truly majestic. He's truly divine. And so Mark tries to describe what they saw, Peter, James, and John. His clothes You can tell he's kind of just grasping at stuff to try to explain it, but nothing is going to cut it. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. No amount of bleach is going to make them white like that. My little girl is all about sequins and glitter, right? No amount of sequins is going to make it like that, make it dazzling like that. It's truly radiant. It's intensely white. And my friends, in this, we are reminded of his holiness. We are reminded of the fact that Jesus has nothing to hide. He's utterly pure. In every way, Jesus is utterly pure. He is absolutely radiant, intensely white, stunning. He's also majestic. He's glorious. It's a reminder that even our limited understanding of beauty, it starts with God. He is beautiful in every way. Stunning to look at. These guys are transfixed. And so it's breathtaking. This whole moment, it's breathtaking. It's powerful. As Jesus is transfigured, he is revealed, as it were. He's disclosed, as it were. So it's visually stunning for them. It's also meaningful. We'll get more into this in a moment. It's so meaningful, as I believe what Jesus is doing here is giving them a preview of his eternal state, his glorified body, what he will be like and look like post-resurrection. He's giving them a preview that is so meaningful in its depth. depth. So he's visually stunning here. It's also theologically surreal, right? Uh, Because a couple of guys show up. Who are they? Very good. Just making sure you're paying attention. I know you were up late last night. 
Moses and Elijah, they appear. There's a lot of rhetoric around, like, what were they talking about? So don't actually know for sure what they were talking about. Um, One of the other gospel records tells us that they were um, referencing, perhaps talking about what Jesus will do on the cross, but we don't know the extent of that conversation. We do know that Moses and Elijah, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, you know Moses and Elijah are kind of a big deal, perhaps reflective of or representative of the law and the prophets. But regardless of what you think they were talking about or why they were there, it's theologically surreal to see the Messiah alongside Moses and Elijah. It's utterly remarkable, but then the moment gets truly astonishing when a voice rings out from heaven. Check out your text, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. This moment that is already remarkable, astonishing to see Jesus in this glorified state, this resplendent state. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. It all points to him. Even the Father's words point to the magnification of the Son, the glory of the Son of God. It all points to him. And this is massive that the Father would say, this is my Son. Hear him. Listen to him. Understand what he has to say. It all points to him. Uh, We've talked a lot about this in John's gospel, that John is making a case as he works through the life of Christ. He's making the case. This is the same thing that's happening in the gospel of Mark. Mark, from tap the buzzer, is making the case that Jesus is the Messiah. You can sort of see Mark saying, even as he writes, towards this pinnacle moment, Peter has just said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus takes them up on this mountain and is transfigured before them. It's like definitive at this point. Utterly definitive. Case closed. Jesus is the Messiah. There's none like him. He is truly the Son of God. The eternal God. And so, my friends, as you look at this scene, as see it in your mind's eye, understand that Jesus is impressive. Amen? He is the one who is impressive. Not them, not us. Jesus is truly impressive. He is worthy of worship. And when we see him like this, my friends, when we truly grab the significance of our Messiah, the significance of the Christ, we will want to just be with him. You guys with me? Just be with him. That's why I said earlier that Peter's idea is actually pretty good. Jesus, Mark says he has to say something, right? They don't know what to say. They're taken off guard. They're in awe, kind of terrified. Why don't we make three tents? One for Moses and Elijah, one for you, right? It will be great. We'll just have a camp out. We'll just stay. Here's the deal, my friends. Think about this. As you think about the glorified Christ, understand that when you see him as he is, you won't have to leave. Amen? We can just stay. 
for all eternity. Isn't that great? I mean, that was a great spot for an amen. We could just stay. My friend, just stay with him. We can do what Peter said. Hey, can we just make some tents? And Jesus will say, I've already prepared them. Amen? I've already prepared them. And you can stay. What a blessing that is. We will want to do that. So, Jesus was transfigured before them. It's an awesome moment as you see it in your mind's eye. It's an awesome moment. It's meaningful. It's significant. But the question is, why does Jesus do this? Why do you think Jesus does this in this moment? I ask that because it's good to be reminded that Jesus doesn't need to do this to remind himself of who he is. Okay? You guys with me? He doesn't need this moment. He doesn't need to remind himself of who he is. I believe he does this out of his gracious heart for his men. In a pivotal moment, in an important teaching moment for them, I believe Jesus does this for them and consequently for us. And in that, if we can grab this, it's truly significant for our lives today. But note it with me in the text. As I studied this for the first time a few years ago, I was blown away by the language. Note it in the text, verse 2. He led them, note the emphasis, he led them up a high mountain by themselves, verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. Note Mark's emphasis that it's for them. Verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. Know your text. Elijah and Moses are actually talking with Jesus, but Mark says they appeared to them. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from heaven to who? The Father wasn't talking to the Son or to Moses and Elijah. He's talking to the disciples. These guys who are slow to get it, right? They're slow to get it. Jesus is explaining to them the whole point of the cross preceding the crown. And they're not getting it. They're not grabbing it at all. And so the voice from heaven rings out. God the Father speaks and says to them, listen. You think that was a helpful moment for these guys? Like if you're struggling to hear him, see him and listen to him. He's the word that you need to hear. So, I think the text bears out, in my mind with clarity, that this private moment on this mountain is for them. And it's for you. So what's the aim? What's the point? What's the purpose of it all? I believe that he does this for them and for you and I for at least these two reasons to provide correction, and to provide comfort. He does this as a corrective, and he does this to provide comfort. So we're just going to walk through these two and be finished. Number one, he provides correction in this moment. I believe that though this is not a one-time thing, it's a progressive thing. Christ is determined 
to free these guys from their self-centeredness. To free them and to free us from their self-centeredness. So we've already seen what happens just a couple of days later. There's no doubt, my friends, there's no doubt in my mind that when they arrive in Capernaum and Jesus looks at them and says, hey guys, what were you talking about on the way? And they were quiet. No doubt in my mind that at least for Peter, James, and John, that image springs into their head. What are we thinking? We're arguing about which one of us is the greatest? What are we doing? None of us are anything. It doesn't matter. He's the one who is majestic. He is the one who is truly great. If I could say it this way, the Mount of Transfiguration is where goat debates go to die. Right? They're finished. Because Jesus is undisputably great. He is truly amazing. I think Jesus is gentle. He's gracious in his rebuke of them. In that moment here in chapter 9, he merely asks the question and just lets the question fall. Then he gives to them a beautiful teaching. He's not really directly rebuking to them. He's so gracious, so gentle. I think he does this in the aftermath of also a beautiful revealing, a simple revealing. This is who I am. I am the one who is truly great. If you think about the progress of John's gospel, we've just been in chapter 12. Where does he go in chapter 13? If you're familiar with chapter 13, you will remember that in chapter 13, Jesus takes them up to a room and he girds himself with a towel. He gets on his hands and knees and he washes the disciples' feet. In that moment, he teaches them something. He teaches them. And in one of the gospel records, it was in that moment, in and around that moment, that they were also having this kind of greatest of all time discussion. Which one of us is the most significant? Which one of us is the most awesome? And Jesus gets down and washes their feet and demonstrates to them what true greatness is all about. It's about servant. It's about being a servant. It's about service. It's about servant-heartedness. Right? That, that's true greatness in a human sense. But all of that pales. From the standpoint of humanity, all of that pales in comparison to divinity. Amen? Jesus is truly great. And so I think even as you see a paralleled look at the gospel records, Jesus is on a mission to free these guys from their self-centeredness. He's constantly bringing, bringing them back to that reality. I think he would do the same thing for us. He would say the same things to us because we are very similar. Are we not? My friends, we're very similar. We're very self-centered. We are naturally and instinctually preoccupied with ourselves. In fact, I was going to tell you a joke about selfishness, but I decided to keep that to myself. <laughs> Figured you'd like a 
good dad joke to start the new year. I think I've shared this before, but I've always gotten a kick out of the country song. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one, oh, my, me, my. Anybody know that? What I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what to see. I like talking about you, 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 usually, but occasionally, I want to talk about me, right? And really, the only thing that Toby Keith got wrong in that was the occasionally and the usually part. We naturally, instinctually, we want to talk about us. It's our thoughts, our opinions, our experiences, our perspectives. We love to talk about us, my, our contributions. We want a little taste of the glory. If you don't know what that is, you don't have junior high boys. <laughs> but all of that is a trap, my friends. All of that is a trap, and Jesus knows that. This mentality of making it, it about us and being self-centered in every way causes chaos in the body, causes strife in the church, and it brings no joy, no ultimate joy. There's no such thing really as a little taste that doesn't become a ravenous appetite. We want glory. We naturally want glory. We want prestige. We want attention. We want to be liked. That's how we're naturally wired. We want that. And Jesus is progressively trying to set these guys free. So what will help us? What helps us is to be regularly fixated on true glory. Amen? To be regularly given over to the transcendent. To have our eyes lifted up from the here and now to go, He's glorious. He's majestic. He's wonderful. He's beautiful in every way. I'm not. I'm not a big deal. I'm not important. God is. He's truly great. And so could I encourage you this year, my friends, my family, in a, in a congregational sense, let's seek to regularly fix our eyes on majesty. Do that in your private time with God on a regular basis, opening up the Word of God and being called to worship on a daily basis through His greatness, through a look at His glory, who He really is, being reminded of who you are in the process, who we are ultimately in the process, so good for us. But also, don't underestimate this, the importance of regularly gathering as God's people to sit under the ministry of the word, to listen to gospel-centered songs that remind us he's the one that's great, amen? He's the one that's truly majestic. So let me encourage you, spend time. I know this is the time for New Year's resolutions. And I, I usually don't get all hyped up about things like that, but could I just encourage you, if it's helpful for you to have a starting point, start it. Open up the Word of God. Open up your Bible. Get into it on a daily basis and see Him. I think this is what Jesus does in Mark chapter 9. He takes these guys up on this mountain and goes, this is glory. This is true majesty. 
So I think he does this as a corrective to correct their natural instincts toward themselves. But then number two, and grab this, my friends, for we don't know exactly what God has for us in 2023. He does this for their comfort. Truly believe this. He does this for their comfort. Okay, so know with me your text. Let's just walk through this again for a moment. Know with me chapter 8, verse 31. Please look at your Bible. Please track with me just for a few more, more minutes here. Chapter 8, verse 31. We're just going to walk through these statements and just grab with me what Jesus is trying to land. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, this is just after the transfiguration moment. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Risen from what? Risen from the dead. Verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And so forth and so on. And again, he talks about suffering there. And then again, down at verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. What's the point? All of this is heavy, right? If you're walking through this, and you're really grabbing the context of this moment, you're grabbing the reality that Jesus is doubling down on suffering. He's doubling down on the reality of the cross. He's relentless about it. He's clear. And so, my friends, grab this. So, in the midst of all of Jesus' relentless emphasis on the cross, on the way of suffering, on the hardship that is ahead of these guys, he takes them up to this mountain and is transfigured before them. In the midst of all of this talk, all of this heaviness, all of this preparation, as it were, for suffering, that Jesus pulls back the curtain and gives them a preview, my friends. Gives them a preview a taste of the reality of what is to come. So, so Jesus, I think, in effect is saying, guys, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how hard it gets, and it's going to get hard, so get your eyes off yourself and on these senseless comparisons. Get your eyes off of that and on to me and on to the mission. But as it gets hard, no matter how hard it gets, understand how it ends, 
understand that we win. Amen? And we win big. We win big. Ultimately, what we see in front of us looks like a major conflict, and it is. It is a constant conflict. It is often dark, right, in front of us. It is often dark. If we're just looking here from an earthly perspective, it is often dark. It looks bleak. It looks like Satan is winning. It looks like the forces of evil are winning in this world. And yet Jesus, in this moment, I believe, is saying to these guys, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how bleak it looks, be reminded of how it ends. Be reminded, my friends, of how it ends. It ends good. Amen? It ends good. It ends in glory. So they would remember that moment in the Mount of Transfiguration. They would remember that after he was risen from the dead. Mark tells us that here. They would be reminded this is what he was saying. It's all good. So I don't know exactly what you're going through now, and I don't know what you will go through in 2023. What I do know is this. God's got it. You guys with me? He's got it. You can trust him. You can trust him. He's bigger than anything that you might face. And ultimately, it's not about here anyway. It's about glory. Amen? He's got that for sure. It's in the bag. Amen? He's already won. He's already won. And so when he takes these guys up on this mountain and through their pen, us as well, and reveals his glory, reveals his resplendence, his transcendence, it is a beautiful reminder of what is to come. Glory awaits, my friends. Peter grabbed this. He doesn't grab it yet here. It's clear, right? It's clear. <laughs> but he eventually gets it. See on the screen what Peter will later write as words of comfort to his brothers and sisters. 1 Peter chapter 4. And notice his emphasis on glory. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Understand, you're going to face hardship. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of Christ. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you remember back in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 8, like Peter wasn't there. He wasn't there. And you can take encouragement in that. If you're not there, if you're, not, if you're going like, I'm not sure I've signed up for suffering. I'm not sure I've signed up for hardship. Okay, it's okay. Peter was there too. But you need to keep leaning in. You need to keep tracking. Understand the reality of the gospel, the robust nature of the gospel. Don't be surprised by it, Peter is, is going. Like if, if you are convictional about your faith, don't be surprised when the world goes, that's nuts. Or when the world goes, that's hateful. Don't be surprised about that. Th this is the path. Okay, this is the path. So Peter grabs it here. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't you think that when Peter was writing that 
in this letter, 1 Peter, that he thought about that mountain, when his glory is again perhaps revealed, when he comes again and we see him as he is, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, Peter says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory, excuse me, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a blessing this is. So, my friends, whatever you face, whatever you face in this coming year, we know who he is and we know how it ends. Right? Come on. We know who he is and we know how it ends. So keep your eyes on him. He is truly great. So if you've read or watched any of the Lord of the Rings saga, you know the epic darkness that is depicted there. And I love the moment where Samwise Gamgee, the great friend to Frodo, says this. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger, they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know how it would end. Because how could, it, how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had a lot of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. That there is some good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. I could nuance that a little bit, I would say. We're not talking this morning about one of the great stories. We're talking about the story. Amen? The ultimate story. And we're not talking about going back to the way the world was. We're talking about going forward to the way the world will be when he comes again in his glory, in his absolute transcendence. So in the midst of... These guys, in the midst of their preoccupation with themselves, with their preoccupation with comfort, with the here and now, Jesus takes them up on this mountain and is transfigured before them. He is transfigured, my friends. See him. This morning, see him. And as we enter into 2023, let's keep our eyes there. God, thank you so much for your great grace. Thank you so much for your gracious overture to your men in this moment. 
to bring them this corrective, but also to bring them comfort, to remind them of who you really are and where this is all going. We're so excited about that. And so I pray that you would center us on that truth in the here and now for our good and for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.